Amen. Lord, that's why we're here, to worship, magnify, and lift up your name, because you alone are worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. And Lord, we long for the day when we'll be around your throne and we will worship you forevermore. Lord, we will see you face to face. Lord, we pray as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Lord, we don't want to hear the opinions of man, but the word of God. And so, Lord, may you speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, shame on you. You have no excuse. We give them away here for free. Amen? So, be, you know, read the book. Don't wait for the movie. You need to be in God's Word every day. You can't do that if you don't have one. All right. If you don't bring it to church, you're not reading it during the week. That's just a fact. Amen? That was kind of weak, actually. Amen? All right. Okay. Hey, a couple things to be praying about. We're going to start this uh, new letter this morning. Titus, if you're new to Calvary, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. On Wednesday night, we go through the Old Testament. We will be in 1 Samuel chapter 14, the second half. Let me encourage you to read that. We're starting a new letter this morning, but before we do, a couple things to be praying about. Some of you know we had a a guy come up, an administrative pastor from Calvary Coast to Mesa, just to kind of give us an overview of our ministry here. You know, it's good to get some outside eyes to take a look at things after six and a half years, having started with just a handful of people, God growing the ministry. We want to be good stewards. Uh, as you know, prior to him even coming, we've put in a, a potential application for a full power FM radio station. So be praying about that. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Jesus in Santa Cruz. How good would that be? So be praying about that. A lot of hurdles in front of us, but our God's greater than all of that. Hurdles are only big if our God is small and our God is great, so the hurdles are nothing. Amen? Amen. Second of all, uh, something that's been on my heart for several years, and I'm not one to recruit people or draft people, so I still will not do that, but I'll at least let you know in case God moves on your heart to be involved. I've been desiring for us to get on, you know, there's local TV we can be on for free. For free. And does Santa Cruz need Jesus or what? And so, uh, you know, what really prompted me is I was flipping through the channels yesterday and there was a new age church on TV and I thought, now that's just wrong. So all we need to do is set up video equipment. We need to start capturing video, something we've been talking about for a while, but you be, be praying about that. We want to put it on our website so that it can reach people all over the world. We actually have people log onto our website from Russia and different places like that. So we want to be able to reach people with the gospel. And so it's just something real simple. Be praying about how you might be involved. And then just so you know that there are so many other things that we can be doing to reach this county. And you know what? We've been sitting here. We've been fed. We've been growing. And now it's time to take some more action for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Titus chapter 1. And just by way of introduction, I want to catch you guys up uh, just kind of where we are in Scripture. As we know, Titus is the third of the pastoral epistles. Letters written to pastors by the Apostle Paul while Paul was in prison. Now, chronologically, it's the third. You have First and Second Timothy and then Titus. First and Second Timothy, obviously, were written to a man by the name of Timothy, his son in the faith. The first letter was written much earlier than the second one. The second one was written, the one we just looked at, just finished looking at a few weeks ago, was written as Paul was about to be put to death, which brought even greater urgency to the words that he gave to Timothy. Now remember, in each of these cases, the Apostle Paul is writing to someone he's done ministry with, and now Paul is encouraging them or exhorting these young pastors to stand firm in the midst of great difficulty, great trials, and great opposition. Boy, I can think of no greater word for the church in the United States today. We need to stand up when nobody else will. We need to speak with great boldness when the world is watering down the message. And this is the same message that the Apostle Paul gave both to Timothy and now he will give to this young man by the name of Titus. Now, each of these letters has a little bit different slant. When we get to Timothy, it's the third letter in order, but it was actually, or Titus, it was actually written at the same time as 1 Timothy. So 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote, and now we're kind of going back in time a little bit to the time of 1 Timothy. He was in prison at the time, and while we know little about this man Titus, we know much more about Timothy, what we do know about him is that every time he's mentioned, he's busy about God's work. 
Now, he's not anywhere in the book of Acts. He appears only in three of Paul's other letters, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and 2 Timothy. But the little information we see, again, tells us that this is a guy that had a great relationship with Paul, but even more importantly, a great relationship with God. You know, Paul would say of him, as we'll see in this morning's text, my true son in our common faith. And in fact, this was the guy, whenever there was a special assignment with difficult people, he would, Paul would send Titus. When things were going really sideways in, in the church of Galatia, guess what? He sent him there. And early on, too, when he would come in and try to speak to the believers and show them an example of a Greek who had come to know Christ and to show them a godly example, he would use Titus as the example. In Galatians chapter 2, he brings them in before the Jewish Christians who were teaching you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. You had to you know, be circumcised and fulfill all of the law, and then you could become a Christian. But you and I know when we add to the cross of Calvary, we're denying it. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. When you start adding to the cross, you make Jesus a liar when he said on the cross, it is finished, to talistai. It's finished. Work is done. Praise God for that. Now, the point I'm making is that there was a time there, just like today, when people were adding to the cross of Calvary, saying, well, yeah, okay, you can come to Jesus, but you've also got to do these 12 other things, or 10 other things, or two other things, or whatever it might be. We see entire denominations today. You must be baptized in our baptismal. You must be you know, confirmed. You must be dedicated. You must have all these things done. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't be baptized because we should. But baptism doesn't save us, Jesus' death on the cross did. Amen? Baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. And when Paul went to refute these guys who were Judaizers in a sense, who were saying, well, we got to be Jewish and Christians. You can't just be one or the other. So for a Greek to become, or a Gentile to become a Christian, he had to first become a Jew. And the example he used when showing them, here's a man who's a Christian who hasn't been circumcised or followed any of the Jewish laws. And here's an example of what man, God can do through a man when he touches him. And the, the example he used was Titus. So while we don't have a lot of information about this man, the information we do have is we see that he was a man being used mightily by God. We can also see, like I said, that he was Paul's troubleshooter. When things were tough, he would send out Titus, he sent him to Corinth, to a very wicked city, to stand up for the truth in the midst of people who were preaching or reaching out against the Lord. And as we're going to see in this morning's text, Paul had sent Titus on a special assignment to a very different situation in Crete, to bring order and direction to the churches there. So when Paul needed something done, Titus was his man. He has sent Titus to the city of Crete. We'll talk about that as we get into the text. But it's very different than the city that Timothy was in. Timothy was in a very metropolitan city in Ephesus. And we see that Titus was in Crete, which is an island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And what's interesting is that while these cities were greatly different, their need was the same. Just like the message last week, when we looked at the difference between the woman at the well and Nicodemus, the most religious man of the day and the most ungodly woman of the day, and the answer was the same, they both needed Jesus. And the people of Ephesus and the people of Crete, while different in their culture and in their backgrounds and in the way the city was at that time, the answer was the same, they both needed Jesus. When you, you come this morning, and let me tell you, I don't care what your cultural background is, what your economic background is, what your experience or relationship or past is when it comes to your level of knowledge of Jesus Christ, the answer is the same for every single person in this room this morning. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and the one and only Savior is Jesus Christ. And we must be born again. So now we see Paul as, as directed by the Holy Spirit. He's giving some exhortation to Titus, who's now in Crete. He's in this city. He and Paul, as we'll see in the text, had been there together. Paul had left. He had left Titus behind. And now he's got these new believers popping up and these churches needing to be planted. And he's left Titus in charge. But now he sends back this letter. And in this letter, he's going to instruct him how to do it. How do we put the church together? How should the church function? So, in chapter 1, we're going to see that he is to protect the biblical truth, the truth of God's word. 
And then in chapters 2 and 3, they're to put the Word of God into practice. So the protection of sound doctrine, doctrine is just a big word for truth, and the practice of sound doctrine, that behavior should be reflected in what we believe. And so this morning, if you are a note taker, and I want to say this too, that the church, not only in Crete was getting off track, but the church today has gotten off track. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly why the church exists. All you got to do is go to Acts 2.42 and Matthew 28.19, and now you know why the church exists. Matthew 28.19 is the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the commandment for the church and for every believer. Then you get to Acts 2.42, and it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And those are the four things that we should see in the church today. The apostles' doctrine is the word of God. The breaking of bread is communion, or also the agape feast that we celebrate. And then we also see that it is prayer, time of prayer, and also fellowship, what we have in common. We're coming together to encourage and exhort and hold one another accountable. That's the church, and that's what it should be, and that's what it was in the book of Acts. But sadly, today, the church has gotten so far away from that. People have watered down the apostles' doctrine because they're afraid of preaching the truth with boldness because they might offend somebody. If the word of God offends us, we need to be offended. Now, if you're offended by my personality, God forbid and Lord forgive me. But we should be offended by the cross of Calvary. It says it's a, it is a stone of offense. And so we need to be offended because it makes us see our, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Also, communion has become a dead ritual to so many. Instead of us really understanding what it's all about, the cross of Calvary, the blood that was shed that we might have eternal life, the need for fellowship. We've gotten so melded into the world that we're finding our fellowship with the world when we should be finding it with God and His people. Now, we are to reach out to the world, we're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And then lastly, the Word of God tells us that Jesus said, My Father's house should be a house of prayer. Can I exhort us? We need to pray more. You want to see God move? Pray. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. Amen? And so we need to be praying more as a body. By the way, at 8.30, if you ever want to come early in the back room, we get together for prayer before the service because we know without the Lord we can do absolutely nothing. So we must remain desperate for Him, seeking His face, intimacy with the Lord. So if you're a note taker this morning, I titled the message, Getting the church in order. The church at that time in Crete is a mess. I mean, there's, there's things that need to be set in place, and he's going to give, them some very, give him some very clear instructions on how to get the church in order. There are three points I want to speak about in this first chapter. We're only going to look at two this morning, because I know when I get to 50 pages of notes, it's time to stop, okay? But the first, the three points we'll see in getting the church in order the protection of sound doctrine and biblical truth. Number one, how do we do that? How do we get the church in order? By preaching the word of God. Amen? And, and amazingly enough, this is baffling to some today. Oh, you just teach through the Bible? I can't tell you how many pastors say, you do, wait a minute, you just teach through the Bible? Yeah. Wow, what a novel idea. And I'm thinking, that's what we should all be doing, Amen? I can't imagine if I had to come up with a new topic every week. What a train wreck that would be. I just praise God that I know what's next because it's just turn the page. There it is. Amen? And we teach all of it in proportion the way God gave it to us. So by proclaiming the truth with great boldness. Number two, by raising up godly pastors and leaders. Men who have been called by God to lead. Men of godly character. Those are two points we'll see today. And then next week, by silencing the false teachers. Those who preach a false gospel. Again, often, when I catch grief, it's because people think it's wrong that we should name the names of those who teach false doctrine. Pastor Dave, just do it in love. Hey, we should do it in love. But you know what? Jesus named names. Because if your pastor doesn't warn you, who in the world is going to? Now again, in love, we want to see those people saved. We want to reach out to them. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. One beggar leading another beggar to the bread. We're no more holy or righteous apart from the grace of God than anyone else. Amen? But with that being said, 
We need not be ashamed to point out when something is a lie. Why? Because if we don't, it'll water down the truth. So let's pick up in verse 1 of getting the church in order, protection of sound doctrine, by first preaching God's word, proclaiming the truth with great boldness. Now let's look at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Always we will see in these letters that are written in this time, we, would all, we always finish off our letter by signing our name at the bottom. They always began the letter with the author because you have to remember they were written on scrolls. So imagine if you got a letter and you had to unroll the entire thing all the way down to the bottom to find out who in the world was writing to you. So they didn't do that. It started off with the person who was writing, so the person who would receive the letter would look in there at the top, they would find out who the letter had been written from. Now, when Titus saw this, now this is just your pastor's opinion. I have an idea. His heart might have skipped a beat. This is Paul, his father in the faith. He'd be like if Chuck Smith called me on the phone or Billy Graham or something, right? You know, you get a phone call, what did I do? You know, right? right? And so Titus gets this letter. It comes and it says, Paul, oh, Paul, what did I do? Oh, Paul, okay. Now, at the same time, he may have also been excited because he knew that there, there was a definite need for some direction of what was happening in Crete. At that time, again, the churches needed to be established and he needed some instruction and direction, whether he knew it or not, and Paul's about to give it to him. Now, one of the things I love, one of the many things I love about the Apostle Paul is he's writing from prison, but he'll never mention it in this letter. Because he's never about himself. He's never thinking, it's never woe is me. And you know, we're always really quick to tell people how tough it is for us, aren't we? I'd say the worst week ever. It was just so hard for me. Oh, right, you know? We just want sympathy, don't we? And you know what? Paul was so God-focused and others-focused, he didn't worry about himself. He knew who was in control. He knew he was indestructible until God was through with him. And so he writes this letter. But also what I love about this letter is that Paul, in the midst of this difficult time, having, and again, this ministry had been, he'd been doing with Titus in the past, he hears word of what's going on in Crete, and he writes this letter. Now, Paul is an apostle, an evangelist, a church planner, a missionary, a man called by Jesus himself, a man who had done great things for God, a man who had endured incredible suffering for the cause of Christ, a man through whom God had brought both healing and miracles, but notice how he introduces himself. Because if he were prideful, he'd say, Paul, the apostle. Not a be-apostle, a-apostle, right? Paul. One who led you to the Lord, remember, right? Remember, you were dying in your sins, and praise God, He sent me your way. Aren't you really glad, right? And I planted the churches there. I've healed the blind and the lame, right? I've walked by people and they've gotten healed. That's me. He didn't do that at all. This is why God could use him. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And God doesn't use the proud. He brings them down. He gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. And the Apostle Paul was a man who was used so mightily by God because he was a man so broken and humble before God. Because look how he introduces himself again in a letter that he is writing. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God. Not the apostle, not the miracle worker, not the healer, not the one who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. No. What does he say? A bondservant. Now, understand quickly, the word there is doulos. It's where, the word can also be translated slave. Paul, the slave of God. Now, this is not a title most people aspire to. Apostle? Oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Apostle, yeah, I like to be apostle. Missionary, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, how about pa- oh, pastors? Kind of cool. People respect you. Don't make any money, but people respect you, right? <laughs> There's all these different reasons why you can pick out the specific type. But you know what he says? A slave. And what I love about this, this word bondservant or doulos in the Greek, it means, that a, it means a slave by choice. It means that what would happen is that if you couldn't pay a debt, you would be enslaved to the person you owed the debt to until the debt was paid off. But once the debt was paid off, you were then set free to go your way. But you could choose at that time 
out of love for your master and out of desire to be with him for the rest of your life to bond yourself to him. So you would say, okay, my debt's been paid. I'm free to go, but I don't want to go. I want to stay with my master because I love my master. And when that would happen, they would take the servant down and they would drive an awl through his ear and nail it to the post of a door. And they would drive the all through and it would be a constant reminder that for the rest of his life, he belonged to his master. And it was by his own free will and his own free choice, he's saying, where else would I go? My master has treated me well. My life has never been better than the time I've been with my master. This is where I want to stay. This is where I want my wife to be. This is where I want my children to be. Paul says, I'm a bondservant of God. You know what, guys? That's the way we ought to be with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Where, hey, Lord, I give you my life. Where else can I go? I want to raise my family here. I want to walk with you. I want to be filled with your spirit. Lord, there's nowhere else I want to be. And Lord, I want you to, he doesn't drive it all through our ear. He pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. That is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week reminder of who we belong to. Amen? Amen? Both to us and should be reflected to the world around us. So, he says this out of love for God. He has made the choice to serve Him. And again, this should be the heart of every person who calls themselves Christian. It shouldn't be enough to know about God, but we must be giving our lives completely to God. Lord, we love You. The Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, Jesus said this, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's not the Christianity being preached today. It's a feel-good Christianity. It's a social Christianity. It's an economic Christianity. It's not a die to yourself and follow him Christianity. But guys, I want to walk with him and dying to myself. All I'm giving up is that which was already dead anyway. Amen? Dying to that which is dead so that I might live and follow him. Then he does say, and, he tell, and I'll tell you why he says it. He says, a bondservant of God, that's first, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the way he says this, he's not speaking of his worldly accomplishments, but his heavenly calling and authority. He's letting Titus know, this is not just a letter one friend to another. I'm actually writing this because the Holy Spirit has moved upon my heart. And as an apostle, I'm writing to you the very words of God under the authority of the Lord. And so those same words that were authoritative to Titus are just as authoritative to you and I today. Guys, if you didn't know it, the Bible is not an old antiquated book. It is the living, breathing word of God. Amen? And it applies just as much to us today as it did to, Timoth to Timothy and also to Titus 2,000 years ago. So he's writing this from the heart of one who is his, quote, father in the faith, and he's given it to him as a direct command, not just his opinion, from, all my, uh, from Almighty God. Now look what it says here. According to the faith of God's elect, better translated would be for the furtherance of the faith of God's elect. I'm writing you this letter so that the faith of God's elect, God's chosen people, those who've given their life to Jesus Christ, is for the furtherance of the elect or the furtherance of the body of Christ. That is why I am writing to you. Paul was both a willing slave and an apostle with a heavenly calling, and his heart and desire was to reach out to the lost and to see the church grow to help develop and deepen the faith of those who already believe. And he says, that's why I'm writing to you. And the acknowledgement of the truth which, which accords with godliness. The deepened knowledge of the truth. He says, I'm writing to you that your belief might impact your behavior. That they might come to a better understanding of the truth of the gospel so that it might impact how we live. Guys, if we really believe what the gospel says, shouldn't it change the way we live? Amen. You know, it's so sad that unbelievers will say, if you guys really believed it, you'd live different. That's a big ouch, isn't it? Oh, if you really believed in heaven, if you really, if you really believed that people were dying and going to hell, how come you don't share your faith more? Oh, it's so sad when you get rebuked by someone who doesn't even know God. Amen? But you know what? As the church, that's what he's saying is, look, I'm writing this letter for the furtherance of the believers, but also to bring a greater understanding of the truth, that our belief might impact our behavior. And that's why I'm writing this letter to his dear son, Titus, again, as the Holy Spirit is the one who has exhorted him to do so. 
Christianity is more than just head knowledge, it's heart transformation. And the real fruit of having believed and accepted the truth is living a godly life. Having become new creations, everything should be different. Our passions, our priorities, the source of our hope. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Galatians 5.22 says, And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and longsuffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Does that describe your life? If it doesn't, there needs to be less of us and more of Him. We need to die to ourselves and be filled with His Holy Spirit. And he's writing this letter exhorting him, again, that his desire is to see them go into deeper knowledge of the truth, that it might transform their behavior, that they might start living like the Christians that they claim to be. His heart was as a bondservant to reach the lost, to deepen the faith of those believed by instructing them in the truth and how to live godly lives. Now look what it says. It impacts not only our knowledge and our understanding of the truth, but also what we look forward to. Look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now the word hope of eternal life is not the way we use the word hope today, which is a wish. I hope so. Have you ever asked somebody, you going to heaven? And they go, I hope so. Guys... Christianity is not a hope-so, it's a no-so. Amen? Not because of our holiness, but because of His holiness. Not because we're worthy, but because He's worthy. Amen? And not even because we're faithful, but because He's faithful. So we don't hope we're going to heaven. We know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the promise of His word that we are going to heaven. Guys, that's way better than winning the lottery. Amen? You know, we're going to heaven. No one can ever take that from you. Amen. The worst thing the world can do to you is the best thing that can happen to you. And I can't wait to get there. How about you? Amen? Amen. So in the Greek, the word hope is not to wish, but it means to anticipate with pleasure or to expect with confidence. We expect with confidence that we're going to heaven. We anticipate with great pleasure that one day we're going to heaven. As believers, we can have a steadfast confidence that we will live forever in the presence of Almighty God. And even more than that, we must know that we have eternal life even now. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. You've already got it. Amen? Guys, you're not going to die, really. All you got to do is leave this dead tent behind. You're going to close your eyes on earth and open them up in heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, Christians die well. Amen? We have nothing to fear. It's graduation day. Amen? And so sadly, we see sometimes, you've heard me say this before, Christians die young and they go, oh, he died too soon. No, he didn't. He graduated early. God bless that brother. Amen? If somebody graduates from high school at 16, we talk about him being a genius. If someone died, oh man, poor guy. Poor guy, he had to leave this dung heap and go be in the presence of Almighty God. Now, we miss them because we should. But you know what? If the Lord takes us home early, praise God. Amen? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We can be sure of our hope. As the eternal one, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He's the down payment on the promise of heaven. And we can have confident expectation. Now, the key to any promise is only as good as the one making it. Right? You can get a promise. Some people will promise you and you're like, yeah, right heard that before, right? You know, there's some people make you a promise that means absolutely nothing because they have no character, right? But here's the good news. The promise of heaven came from Almighty God. Look what it says. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, praise God. Did you know there's things God can't do? God can't lie. He can't be wrong. Amen? He can't change his mind. You know why? He doesn't have to change his mind because he knows everything. If he changed his mind, it would mean he didn't know something. He knows everything. He can't change his mind. So don't pray and ask God to change his mind. That's just a waste of your time. Amen? Pray and ask God to change your heart. So God cannot lie. He cannot be wrong. So the good news is he cannot lie because he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So guess what? He promised us we're going to heaven. He can't lie, so guess where we're going? 
Amen? We're going to heaven. Not because of our works, but because God said so. Not because I had a burning in my bosom, but because God said so. Amen? He had said so, that's why I'm going. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because God said so. And He can't lie. And He's faithful. And He promised. And He doesn't break them, though everyone in this room has at one time or another. He doesn't. It says, He promised before time began. Now, we could talk about this for an hour, but this would just give you a headache. He promised before time began. What does that mean? Now, do you understand that He created time? Do you understand that He's outside of time and space? Now, if that doesn't give you a headache, I don't know what will. He's outside of space. What's outside of space? I don't know. That's why I'm not God and He is. Amen? And we try to understand God and tell God what to do. Are you kidding me? We, don't, we can't even understand being outside of space and outside of time. He's God. He's beyond all of it. He's so much greater than we think we are going to be blown away when we get to heaven. We're not going to get there and go, oh, is that it? That's not what's going to happen, amen? At all. We're going to be like, if I had any idea, I would have prayed more. Amen? If I had, Lord, oh, Lord, whoa, how, Lord, why didn't you tell me? I tried, 66 books worth. You just weren't paying attention, amen? He loves us. He knows what's best for us. He's promised us before time began. So that means before time began, before he even created man, he knew man was going to rebel, and he knew that man was going to sin and separate himself from him, and then he knew he'd have to send his son to suffer and die and pay the price and have all the sin of mankind placed upon himself to redeem us back into himself, and yet he made us anyway. What a God of grace, amen? He knew we were going to blow it royally, and he made us anyway. He that knows me best, loves me most, ought to blow your mind. Amen? Nobody else knows you even one-tenth the way God knows you. You might think you're being transparent with your spouse. God really knows you. Amen? I'm glad that God doesn't like display stuff on screens. Aren't you glad? Oh, no, I don't want... My week, I'm out of here. I'm not staying, right? This is not happening. So guess what? He knows everything, and He loves us anyway. That's the God... We serve. Why do we try to hide things from God? He created time and space. He knew everything you were going to do before He created you. Before there was even time to keep track of time. How long ago was it? I don't know. There was no time, so we can't keep track of it. People say, how long going to be in heaven? Forever. Well, how do we long? What if you're 50 billion years? We'll still be there. Where was God before 500 billion? He was there. Where was He before that? He was there. He was always there. I don't understand. That's why we need God. Amen. <laughs> Aren't you glad we serve a God we can't understand? I'm just so glad He's so much greater than we could possibly imagine. He's the one that promised. And we can rest in His promises. But look what it says in verse 3. But has in due time manifested His Word through seven steps. No, through preaching. Amen? Not through a watered-down gospel. He manifested His Word through preaching. That word preaching is to herald. It's to herald, it's what a herald would do is he would take the message from his master or from the one that was in authority and he would speak it verbatim and he would speak it loudly and without compromise to everyone so they all could hear. That's preaching. It's not going through and going, I think people would really like it if I talked about this, this would be good. You know what it is? It's the whole counsel of God, amen? It's not picking and choosing the things that make us feel good about ourselves. We feel way too good about ourselves already. That's the problem, amen? <laughs> Manifest. The word there means to make visible that which was hidden or unknown. What makes manifest what was hidden or unknown? The preaching of the Word of God. What is it that transforms life? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by? Word of, word of God. It's God's Word that transforms life. So why are we ashamed of it? Why are we hiding from it? Why are we trying to temper it down? Lord, help us to speak it in love, but with great boldness. You know what's interesting? The word is manifest through preaching, but ultimately the word was made manifest in the flesh. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the word? Jesus is the word. And so when we proclaim the word, we're proclaiming Jesus. Amen? He is 
the ultimate manifestation of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. There's nothing so tragic as having the truth, the one that saved us and redeemed us, and then keeping it to ourselves. How in the, is there anything more selfish on this planet than that? We can come up with all kinds of excuses why we do it, can't we? Well, I just did it because, you know, I just didn't think they'd want to hear it. Guys, if we really believe it's true, they need to hear it whether they want to hear it or not. Amen? Amen. That was really weak. Is that true or not? Amen? Amen. I mean, when we, we have the, the answer. You know, people are watching Oprah looking for answers. They're watching Dr. Phil. They're going to the counselor. They're reading books. They're, they're looking at the stars. Right? They're reading in the newspaper. Oh, I'm a Leo. That means my moon is rising in the thing. And what a bunch of nonsense. Here's the thing, guys. We have the answer. What's the meaning? Oh, I don't understand the meaning of life. I know what it is. It's Jesus. Amen? Him crucified and risen from the dead and having a relationship with Him. Guys, we should be shouting that from the mountaintop. Next time you see someone watching Oprah, doesn't have the answers, tell them. (laughs) Have you ever noticed those shows? They talk about something for an hour and they have no answers at the end. Okay, we're going to send you some counseling with a guy who has no answers just like us, right? Instead of saying, you know what the answer is? It's Jesus. He is the answer. He is our hope. And he has manifested his word through preaching. He's writing this to a pastor. Do you think some pastors might need to read this? He's manifest his word through programs. No. Worship's great, but he didn't manifest his, wor- manifest his word through worship either. Or through great dramas. All good stuff. God can use that stuff. Guys, he manifests his word through preaching. People say, I want to go to a church where they don't have a pastor. Well, that's great. That'll work out just fine. But God has called some to be pastors. Amen. God has called some. All of you are called. All of you are gifted. We all have gifts. We minister one to another. But a church without a pastor is nonsense. Just like a church without believers is nonsense. God has given us all gifts, and He wants to use them for His glory. We have the truth. We know the meaning of life. We need to proclaim it with great boldness. And most specifically, to get the church in order, the pastors must start doing it. I know this will go out on the radio. Lord, I pray that many pastors will hear this. You know, I have such a burden for pastors. I have such a burden. Can we just teach the Bible? But my people won't listen to it. Preach it anyway. Amen? Well, they might fire me. I've told two guys now, if they fire you, I'll give you a job. All right? Just preach it and see what happens. People are really hungry for it, even if they don't know it. Amen? Don't you remember the first time you walked in and heard the Word of God taught or the Holy Spirit illuminated truth and you went, dude, where have I been? What, what have I been doing all this time? You've got to be kidding me. The Bible, it rocks and it's relevant to my life and I don't have to have it changed or watered down. Praise God for the Bible. And I pray that we would read it more than just at church on Sunday. So getting the church in order by bringing it back to the reason it exists, to know Him and to make it known, and it begins with preaching the Word of God with great boldness. Then he says, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. What was committed to him? Preaching of the Word. It was committed not only to Paul, but it was committed to Titus. And it's been committed to every single pastor on this planet. If someone is called to be a pastor, they are called to preach the Word. I don't understand how those two things can be separated. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Well, I'm a pastor. I don't teach, though. You're not a pastor. What does 1 Timothy 3 say? Able to teach. Amen? By the way, every dad in this room ought to be the spiritual leader in his home and teaching his family the Word of God. Amen? Amen? You're all called to teach. We're all called to teach. Moms, teaching your kids. All of us are called to do that. How much more should those called by God to be spiritual leaders in a church proclaim the word of God with great boldness? And again, it was given not by men, but by the commandment of our Savior, it says. This has been given to me by the commandment of God, our Savior. If God commands you to do something, you should do it. Amen? 
This is not an opinion voted on. Okay, we're going to have a vote next Wednesday night. Everybody come and we'll vote on whether or not we should keep teaching the Bible. That's what's not going to happen, all right? Because if you voted not to have, I just have to kick you out and start over, right? Because we're going to teach the Bible, amen? That's why we're here. I don't get it. I know that I'm getting off on a tangent here, but you know what? Satan wants to alter the message or quiet it all together. And it is falling into his trap when we do that. The most selfish and ungodly thing we can do as Christians is to hide the truth and the very hope that lies within us. The word was commanded by our Savior to be taught, and it's that same word that reveals our Savior to the lost. That's why he commanded us to teach it. Verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our, most com- in our common faith. You know what Titus and Timothy or Paul had in common? Their faith in Christ. He was a Greek convert, but what they had in common was Jesus. Have you ever noticed that some of the Christians you hang out with, if neither one of you were saved, you would have nothing to do with each other? Is that true or not? We got three or four pastors who hate sports. What are you, aliens or what? I don't get it. But here's the point. I'm like, you're out of your mind, right? But here's the point. We got Jesus in common. We got everything in common. Amen? Amen. Blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. And when you got Jesus in common, you have everything in common. And that's what he's saying. Titus, you know what we got in common? Our common faith in Jesus Christ. That's what brings us together on Sunday, brings us together on Wednesday, brings us together as the body of Christ. We got all kinds of economic backgrounds and, you know, ethnic backgrounds. Who cares? What we have in common is Jesus. And that makes us family, amen? We're brothers and sisters in him. I love that he says a true son. It means that he had more than one son because didn't he call Timothy his son in the faith too? That means that we can disciple more than one person. That means we can be giving our lives away to more than just one person. Then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I love about this as he always says grace and peace. The word grace is, is the Greek way of greeting somebody. That word is, is charis. And charis is a Gentile greeting. And then the word peace is shalom, which is the Hebrew greeting or the Jewish greeting. So in every letter you see him write, he says, you know, charis and shalom. Because only through the grace of God can we know peace. Amen. Without grace, there is no peace. But notice, every time he writes to a pastor, he puts in the word mercy. You know why? Because they need it. Amen? Oh, you're a pastor. Grace, mercy, and peace. Because you're going to need all of that and more if you're going to be in the ministry. The word peace means quietness or rest. And it can only, we can only enter into his rest through the grace and mercy of our Savior. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, sometimes I love to just take 20 minutes and meditate on a verse like that. You know what our Father wants for you? Grace, mercy, and peace. You know what Jesus wants for you? Grace, mercy, and peace. He's not a God up in heaven waiting for you to make a mistake so He can smoke you. He's a loving Savior who wants to bless you. Amen? Amen. And He already has. And we need to remember his character. So point number one, getting the church in order, protection of sound doctrine by preaching God's word, proclaiming the truth with great boldness. And then the next five verses, let's take a look. We've seen these before, so we'll go through them fairly quickly, but let's take a look at the second point by raising up godly pastors and leaders. Now look at the quality and the character of those who God has called. Look what he says. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Okay, again, this island in the Mediterranean Sea, It's southeast of Greece, and after a successful evangelistic campaign, Paul's left Titus behind to build up stable churches with mature and godly and qualified pastors, men of godly calling and character. Timothy was in Ephesus doing the same thing. It's interesting that the word Crete means carnal. So he left him in a carnal place to raise up churches. Now I don't feel like the Lone Ranger anymore. So you know what? The word, word, it's interesting. And we'll see it next week. To cretinize meant to be a liar. So someone said, you're cretinizing me, man. You're lying. Because this place was known for its evil and its lying. It was filled with liars and evil people. And he's planting a church there. 
And so he's writing this letter back to him to help him set things in order. Look what he says. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. The word set in order is a medical term for mending a broken limb. He says, I sent you there to bind up that which was broken and to straighten it out. The churches are there, but it's a mess right now. We need to get the church back to what it needs to be. To establish and order the churches. And how would he do that? By raising up godly pastors. The things that were lacking was godly leadership. And then leadership that we'll see next time that would remove the false teachers. The word order there in 1 Corinthians, it tells us let things be done decently and in order. Guys, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. If you go into a church and it's mayhem, that's not God. Now again, we worship, we lift up our hands, we praise His name. But you know what? When there's mayhem, the focus is not on God, but it's on people. So when we worship, there's only one who all the focus must be on. It's Him. And He's saying to set the church in order. So things should be done decently and in order when the Holy Spirit is the one doing the leading. Again, the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. So how do you do that? Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The word elder and bishop and pastor are interchangeable in the Bible. For me to say this many times, elder describes who he is. He's spiritually mature. Bishop describes what he does. He oversees the people. Pastor describes how he does it with the heart of a servant and as a shepherd who ministers to precious sheep. So every city was to have a pastor. When people say, where in the Bible say we have to have pastors? First of all, all over the Bible. But right here it says that every city raise up a pastor. The word appoint there, notice it's going to be on the basis of calling and character, not popularity. He's not going to have elections. Notice this. They're not going to vote on who the pastor in each city should be. He's to recognize the godly character and recognize God's hand upon them and the calling he's placed upon them and raise those guys up, the ones that God has called, that God has appointed to simply recognize it. So it's not, and notice too, nowhere is he going to mention, and I'm not against this, he doesn't mention education. He doesn't say, go find the most educated guys. Education's great. Bible college is wonderful. But education does not equal calling. It's a big mistake today. Because a guy's got a PhD, a doctorate of theology, people think that means he's a pastor. I'll tell you what, some of the most painful messages I've ever said through in my life. I've been through people with multiple PhDs. I got Greek, Hebrew, well, speaking that because it's just as effective as what you're doing now. Here's the point. The point is that there's calling that comes. Amen? And gifting, and you know when it's there. You know what, whenever we say, we call someone up to ordain them as a pastor, everybody goes, well, duh, I thought he was a pastor like three years ago. You know why? Because when God calls them, God equips them, amen? amen. He doesn't equip the call, he called the equipped, he equips the called. So appoint them, let's go through these. Now it says there, appoint elders in every city. Now what do we need to know about these men? First, he must be blameless. Uh-oh, I'm out. Right? Blameless doesn't mean sinless. Praise God for that, or everyone's disqualified. The word literally means nothing to hold on to. It means that from outward appearance, he has no accusation the world can make against him. When they see him, they don't say, oh, that's the guy who ripped off the, or that's the guy who cheated on his wife, or that's the guy. You know what they say? Okay, that guy loves Jesus. Doesn't mean perfect, but without accusation from the outside. A man living a godly and set-apart life. He must be blameless as a steward of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, what does a steward do? A steward is somebody... Oh, wait a minute. Back on verse 6. If a man... It's blameless is twice. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife... Now, this doesn't mean he has to be married. Paul was not married when he wrote this. But what it does mean is he has to be married to one woman. Amen? So if you have four wives and you want to just game over. You need to divorce three of them. Or you weren't married to the last three anyway. But here's the point. The point is, some people will say, well, that means if you're divorced, you're disqualified. I don't believe that's true. I believe it's speaking to the time when there were multiple wives. As long as the divorce has been biblical, if the unbeliever departs, if there's been adultery in the marriage, I believe God can still use that person. God does not punish the innocent party. Amen? God will still use them. 
So he's a one-woman man. That's what this really means. He's got eyes for one woman. He's not, a flir- he's not flirtatious. He's not, you know, ogling. He's got eyes for one woman, his wife. That's the only one. So he's, a, he's blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Uh-oh. My kids are kind of a train wreck. That's not gonna work. Here's the thing. The word dissipation means riotous. Insubordination means rebellious. So the man must, the Bible says, if man cannot rule in his home, how can he rule in the church? The first place you look is at his home. Now, this doesn't mean his kids are perfect either, praise God, or we'd all be out, amen? Here's what it means. It means that he takes spiritual headship in his home, and when his kids are outside of God's will, he disciplines them in a godly way, and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And as long as you live here, we're going to obey God's rules. Doesn't mean they won't rebel. Doesn't mean they won't. He's going to, but he's going to bring discipline to bring them back right with God. And it might include at some point putting their bags out on the porch. Because we're going to serve God in this house. Amen? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I love you. I'll never stop loving you. You'll always be my child. But when you dishonor God, you can't live here. Now, again, doesn't mean if they sin one time, you kick them out, we'd all be kicked out. It means when they live in rebellion and we reject the word of God and don't want to hear what you have to say and will not succumb to godly discipline. So if a man just lets his children live in righteous living and live in rebellion and will not correct them, he's disqualified from ministry. A lack of discipline is a breeding ground for rebellion and disrespect. All you got to do is look at the schools today and know that's true. Amen? We need more discipline, don't we? Let's read on. I want to finish this. It says there, for the bishop could be. No, it says must be blameless as a steward of God. Now, what is a steward? A steward is someone who takes something that he doesn't own and takes good care of it. Joseph, great example. All of Potiphar's stuff was in his hands. We are to be stewards of the gifts God's given us and use it for his glory. That's what a steward is. A steward owns nothing. He simply takes that which is owned by his master and he uses it faithfully. Look what it says. Not self-willed. That word means self-pleasing or arrogant. He is not to be a dictator. A pastor must not be overbearing. He must not be one who always pushes in attempt to get his way. He's called to lead, not to be a dictator. And that applies to husbands as well. Amen? God's called you to be the spiritual leader, but not the dictator in the house, ruling with the iron fist. Wives really respond really well to that, by the way. Found that to be real effective. Then it also says, not quick-tempered. Not one who is irritable or easily inflamed, but one who is calm in his responses. You know, this is when you can really tell the Holy Spirit's getting a hold of someone's life. When you don't overcome evil with evil, but you overcome evil with good. When a soft answer turns away wrath. Amen? Because don't you just, when someone gets in your face, don't you just want to drop them like a bag of hammers? I mean, don't you? I mean, don't you just want to, in your flesh, what do you... Do you know who you're talking to? I mean, don't you get like that? That's our flesh, isn't it? But you know when the Spirit gets in charge, mind you, yeah, do, does He know who He's talking to? Sinner, right? In need of a Savior, right? Praise God for His grace. And we need to respond in love. Know that those attacks are opportunities for ministry. Amen? An opportunity for you to reflect the Savior. Then it says, people love this, this portion of Scripture whenever it comes up, not given to whine. People love to whine about wine, but here's the point. Not one who stays near the wine. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without, without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed drink. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why I don't need alcohol? I got the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that alcohol is called spirits? You ever notice that? They sell spirits. We don't need spirits. We got the spirit. Amen? So be not drunk with wine. And it's some, and Pastor Dave's opinion, real clear. I do not believe a pastor should ever drink alcohol, period. When we make a guy pastor, the first thing I tell him is, if you drink, you're stopping. 
And if you do drink, maybe you should pray about not being a pastor. Because here's the point. Drinking stumbles others, if nothing else. Other people see it. Oh, right? I, I got a pro- You know what? Just It's better to abstain. Because nothing good can come of it. Only bad can come from it. So if only bad can come from it, why do it? I mean, that's what we, you know, when we make decisions, we ought to think, is any good going to, can any good, can bad, then I'm not going to do it. That's Pastor Dave's opinion, okay? You got to understand, in those days, water supply was a disaster. So they would drink wine because it was more pure. But you know what, guys? We got bottled water. Drink bottled water. If you're not drunk with wine, drink sparklets or something, right? Now, look what else it says. We're almost done. Not violent. The word there is a striker. One who abstains from fighting. Now, that's not good. If your pastors are brawling with people, then not so much. That's not good. It's funny. One of the things Roger told us, he said, you know, I've been doing this a long time, the guy from Costa Mesa. He said, it's good to have, like, you got police officers in your church? Set them up toward the front so if someone charges the front, they can get them and you won't have to. Because he said it's happened many, 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 many times. People get upset, they charge the pastor. <laughs> Got 400 people, 300, whatever it is, can tackle them before they get here, all right? Because I don't want to get in the flesh. The last thing I want to do. Now, look what it says here. <laughs> not violent, not greedy for money. That word's not covetous. He's not materialistic. He's not one who has this insatiable appetite for stuff. He's not in the ministry for the money. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so these are the qualities that, Titus, you should be looking for in those you raise up as pastors. But look what it says. Those are things he shouldn't be. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Here's what he should be, last two verses. But hospitable. You know what that word really means? He has to like people. But you'd be amazed at the number of guys who are pastors who don't like people. I've had pastors tell me the ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. The, the ministry is the people. Amen? And if a pastor doesn't love people, he's not a pastor. And the word hospitable is, again, he's not a guy up in an ivory tower who goes up and studies and comes down and brings the message and retreats back, you know, through the green room, never to be touched by anybody. But he's a man who loves, serves, and interacts with the people. He opens his home. He's available. And pastors who have no contact with people cease to be servants. And so he's telling Titus, he needs to be a guy who loves people. Not only that, but it says he needs to be a lover of what is good. He loves what is good and wants no part of that which is ungodly or evil. He pursues what is wholesome and godly in friendships, in entertainment. You know what? I think what we are entertained by is a great reflection of where our heart is. And we can be entertained by the very sins Christ died for and feel no conviction. That concerns me. That really concerns me. I think that people will say, well, Pastor Dave, you're just uptight. So if they curse God's name one time in a movie, you won't go see it. Uh, no, I won't. Take God's money to pay to watch a movie to listen to them curse his name. I, I got a problem with it. Now, again, oh, Pastor Dave getting legalistic. No, I just don't. Hey, guys, I'm just sharing my heart with you. Is that okay sometimes? I'm just sharing my heart with you because I believe, again, I'm not doing it, oh, I'm I'm being good, I've got these rules. No, I'm doing it because I don't want to be around that. It hurts me when I hear my Savior's name cursed. Doesn't it hurt you to hear it? It hurts me when I hear it on a Little League field. It hurts me when I hear it in the grocery store. Someone just cursing God's name, I went because I think He's the one who died for you. I need to be reaching out to those people in loved. We should not be entertained by the very sins Christ died for. It says there, sober-minded. This means he takes very seriously what he's called to do. Everything in life is under submission to the lordship of Christ. He exercises self-control. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor, but it doesn't mean, or it doesn't mean he doesn't laugh or have fun. I certainly do that. But you know what? He realizes how significant what he's doing is. And how important it is not to joke around when it comes to the gospel. Not to joke around when it comes to things. You know, I don't mind if a pilot or a surgeon has a good sense of humor, but I just assume he not be cracking jokes while he's cutting me open. <laughs> Amen? Hey, dude, surgery time now. Okay, talk about the jokes later. Be serious now. And you know what? 
I think there's too much coarse jesting in pulpits today. There's just too much joking around. And again, natural humor comes out, but we should be writing jokes into the message. We should be proclaiming the Word of God and taking it seriously. He then says just. You know what just means? Just simply means, and, and it's a man of integrity who sticks by his word. A man of his word. T- Titus, as you're looking for pastors, look for a man who's a man of his word. A man who practices what he re- preaches. A man who's sincere in his conversations with people. Not only just, but holy. Devout in his faith and his love for God. Living a life set apart. The, word, the root word for the word holy is different. Don't you find that interesting? The root for the word holy is different. And yet we got whole churches and, and the whole movements today trying to be more like the world. Let's be more relatable. Let's be more Christ-like. Amen? People were not attracted to Jesus because he was just like them. They were attracted to Jesus because he was nothing like them. Amen? And the church needs to be more like Jesus and less like the world. Just holy and self-controlled. Self-controlled in what he eats and drinks, that he exercises godly discipline, he resists fleshly temptation. So just is right toward men, holy, right toward God, and self-controlled, right toward his own actions. Last verse, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So finally, calling and character are seen clearly in his attitude toward the word of God. If he does not elevate the word of God, he's not called. If he does not make the word of God a priority, he's not called. He holds fast to God's word, not the opinions of men, not the latest fad, not the latest program. And notice it says, as he has been taught. This means he's been under the teaching of someone else who has trained, taught, and discipled him. Some counsel my dad gave me many years ago. He said, son, if I could do it all over, I would have been an assistant pastor first. I praise God I spent 15 years as an assistant pastor. Not that I have arrived, i got a lot more to learn, okay? But I'll tell you what, I praise God for all of that. And I think each of us, as we're moving in ministry, it's good to find those who are in the ministry we feel called to and be discipled by them. Be equipped for the ministry we have a burden for. Lastly, it says that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. You know what, this guy not only elevates the word he has a working knowledge of it the kind of guy titus you should raise up to be pastor is the kind of guy that all he wants to talk about is the bible and when you come to him with a problem you know what he's going to do quote scripture at you you come to him and go here's my problem well the word of god says well i don't know what do you think well what i think is irrelevant let me tell you what the bible says but can't you just once tell me what you think no you can watch oprah for that let me tell you what the bible says amen (laughs) He has a working knowledge of Scripture. From sound doctrine of God's Word, he exhorts those who need to hear the truth. He corrects those who contradicts. He speaks with boldness and conviction, and he does it in love. Raising up such spirit-filled men of conviction and character would indeed get the church back in order. Having those men lead the church would certainly get the church back in order. Today, you know, we have, sadly, we have entire denominations that are voting on whether or not we should... Believe that the Bible is inspired. You know, whatever they vote, the Bible's inspired. Amen? Voting on things that are so contrary to Scripture that the Bible clearly says it, but they reject it. Why? Because they're listening to the words of men instead of the Word of God. We need more men to be leading in churches that magnify the Word of God, have a working truth of the Word of God, and speak only from the Word of God. That's what we need. Amen? What kind of revival would happen in this country today? So, in closing, getting the church in order. Protection of sound doctrine. Number one, by preaching God's word. Proclaiming the truth with great boldness. It is the source of our hope and eternal life. And number two, by raising up godly pastors and leaders. Men who have been called by God to lead. Men of godly character. As we'll see next week, by silencing the false teachers. Those who preach a false gospel, and seek to draw people away from God and unto themselves. Guys, I know you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not a pastor. Why did I have to hear all that? Because you need to know what the church should look like. Amen? You need to know. And guys, you need to hold the leaders in the church accountable to it. This is what the Bible says, guys. This is what we need to be doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. 
You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, we, we just thank you that you've given us your word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. You've written it all down for us. You've tra- had it translated into our language. You've given us the understanding to be able to open it up and just hear directly from you, from the very throne of God. Lord, may we not take your word lightly or take it for granted. Lord, may we see it for what it is, the roadmap to life, the place where we can find truth and find direction. And Father, I do pray that, Lord, for the churches here in Santa Cruz, you bring revival in the hearts of the pastors to proclaim your word with great boldness. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room that, Lord, we would hunger and thirst for your word more than our necessary food, as the Bible says. We would desire the word. We'd be passionate about it. And Lord, that, the, that your word would come out of our mouth when others ask for advice. Lord, that we wouldn't tell them what we think, but we would tell them what you say. And Lord, do it in love. So Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that before time began, your will was to redeem even us. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. let's stand and close the worship song.